and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and the faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adler's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, for the death shall be full of knowledge of the Lord and the waters over the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall be nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathos, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather dispersed of Judah and from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall be jealous of Judah. I'm sorry. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Amorites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongues of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria, for the remnants that remain of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Have you ever noticed the seemingly universal dissatisfaction that humans have with this world that we live in? Have you ever just noticed in the conversations that you have, uh, the people that you talk to, uh, maybe not just uh, out at the workplace, maybe in your own home, how there is always something in the world around you that just seems like it's not quite the way that you want it. It's probably a lot more pervasive than that, right? We're going to be thinking about this morning, and and just to help me get sort of in the mood for that, I decided that I would watch the news for about 10 minutes uh, just to get me ready for how bad the world is. Uh, Let me confess, I didn't even make it 10 minutes, all right? So I spent 10 minutes, flipped on a a variety of news channels, and uh, you know, the first thing that I came across as I was thinking about this, uh, of course, was the reality that the Patriots are in the Super Bowl yet again. And I said, not in the world as I believe it should be. Uh, from there, though, it got a little bit more serious. 
uh, started talking about the fact that in the Sudan right now, uh, because of the civil war, we're finding that children are being abducted and sold even more than before. Uh, not only that, uh, the story went, line went from there to President Trump, our government leadership. And uh, the fact that an email has come out that he feels has exonerated him of the potential collusion that he had with Russia. I mean, what a great thing to think about that like maybe your political leaders are colluding with other nations. Makes you question leadership, doesn't it? Not only that, the storyline went from there to the Larry Nasser case where young women who were sexually abused confronted their accuser, and I had to shut it off in the middle because I had kids in the room. And that's the world that we live in, a world that looks broken all around us. Well, it's not just the newsroom uh, that causes us concern, is it? It's really our living rooms. It's our living rooms where we also start to see that the world isn't the way that it ought to be. Our relationships with our wives and our husbands and our kids, they don't work the way that we want them to work, right? Our our kids don't relate the way that they ought to automatically, at least not mine. I don't know about yours, but I never had to teach them to fight. They kind of figured that out for themselves. And so as I'm, I'm looking at humanity all around us, we realize the world isn't quite the way that it's supposed to be. Well, I think that might be just one small reason that John Mayer uh, sang in one of his songs, we're, we're just waiting on the world to change. Everybody's waiting on the world to change. There's this sense, this hope, this desire, this longing that there's really something more than the current state of affairs. Well, we have seen all kinds of utopian projects like Thomas More wrote about in his work in the 1500s, but we really start to believe that utopia, which actually means no place, might be really accurate, that there is no place like that place that we long for. Well, we're right back in our Looking at Jesus series in the book of Isaiah chapter 11, where we actually find that the Bible tells us that there really is a place like the place that we all long for. And it's a place that we're not going to come to or arrive at through greater education or more money or better uh, resources, but actually the thing that we need ultimately is a better king, a king who will come and set all things right. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at this morning. And let me just say, The current state of affairs for Judah in the day that Isaiah spoke to him were actually probably beginning to look or about to look a lot worse than what we look at around us today. If they were to flip on CNN, what they would find is is that they were about to be invaded by the most powerful nation in the world, Assyria, who was promising to replace the king and and actually uh, be a sovereign over them and oppress them and and make them his slaves. And and we find them seeing this coming to their door, and it's in the middle of that, as they see the, the potential through this prophecy of Isaiah, of a world that's coming undone, that God says in the midst of that, there is something coming that is better. Now here's what's fascinating. He has just given us this image in chapters 9 to 10 of Isaiah of the judgment of God that has come on both Assyria and Judah. God is the great lumberjack who has come with his acts of judgment and he has chopped down every tree in the forest so that at the end of chapter 10, all you see is a vast forest full of nothing but stumps, dead stumps, death and devastation. It looks like the most hopeless scene that you can imagine as the nations have been wiped away and you're thinking, God must be done with us. But praise God that chapter 11 comes. And in chapter 11, out of the midst of this barren wasteland, we are given a vision of a shoot 
that springs forth and bears fruit in the midst of that barren land. And that is a signal of hope for you and me. And that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about this morning. If you're taking notes, the image that we're going to be looking at, our main point is this, that God raised up King Jesus as a banner for you and for me, signaling a new day for all of creation and every nation. Now, there is a new day that is coming that we are called to look forward to. And that's what we're going to be meditating on, thinking about this morning in God's Word. The Messiah who would come would usher in both redemption of His people and restoration of all of creation. And that's what we long for. Well, let's pray quickly and ask the Lord for His help as we try to excite our hearts to long for that day. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you as broken vessels asking for your help as we turn our attention to your word. We need your spirit of wisdom and understanding. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord as we turn to your word this morning. And so, Father, we pray that as we come to your word that you would excite us about the coming day that you have promised us. Lord, we pray that our hearts would not be so weighed down with this world um, as those who have been redeemed, that we forget about the restoration that is to come. Lord, we pray that you would do this to the glory of your name we ask. Amen. Well, as we look at our, our first six verses, we see this, that a spirit-anointed Davidic king is coming. A spirit-anointed Davidic king is coming. It's a new David. Now, from the devastation of an annihilated forest that seems deader than dead, we see a shoot that rises up from one of the stumps that looks like the child that we were promised in Isaiah 9. Now, you'll remember in Isaiah 9, uh, we were told that there was a coming king. But here in Isaiah 11.1, he describes this coming king saying this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, if you don't know Jesse, Jesse is actually the father of King David. And if you were to read through the book of Kings, what you'll find is, is that those kings were actually assessed based on how they measured up to King David, the gold standard of what it meant to be a king. But only David is called the son of Jesse. We don't see other kings referred to with that language. But here in Isaiah, he envisions the coming of a king who is both, catch this, a shoot who is coming out of Jesse, but also he is the root from which Jesse comes. It's kind of an interesting image, isn't it? I mean, you don't usually think like the shoot could be the root or the root the shoot. I mean, like it's one or the other. So how is it both? Sort of perplexing. Sounds confusing. How can the shoot of Jesse also be the root of Jesse? Well, Alec Moyer explains this, saying, When Jesse produces a shoot, it must be David. But to call the expected king the root of Jesse is altogether another matter, for this means that Jesse sprang from him. He is the root, support, and origin of the messianic family in which he would be born. In other words, he would bear the fruit of a new creation. This one who would come up out of Jesse, who was also the origin of Jesse. This Messiah or Christ would be a a new David according to the shoot, but greater because he's also the root who came before him. 
I mean, doesn't this sound a lot like the Ancient of Days who was born in a manger? I mean, this is the, the Christ who was to come. Like the original David who came from a no-account family, this greater David would come with greater credentials. And we find that in verse 2, the greater credentials of this Davidic king. Notice that he is spirit-anointed. Spirit verse 2 tells us this new Davidic king would also receive an unprecedented anointing of the Holy Spirit who would rest upon him. Uh, just look at verse 2 at what he says about the nature of the Spirit and this king. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and, and might. The Spirit of knowledge and a, a fear of the Lord. Now, this Spirit would be lavished upon him. Now, if you're wondering about how the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowered people for specific tasks. So you'll remember Bezaliel was empowered to build the tabernacle. Uh, and then later God would also empower others like Gideon to defeat the Midianites. It was a particular task that they were given the Holy Spirit for. What well, we know here, there is actually a picture of a kind of endowment of the Holy Spirit who rests upon this king in a way that seems to surpass Moses and David and Joshua. Now, this king would receive a, a double threefold re reception of the Holy Spirit. Uh, notice what the Spirit would do. First, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. It tells us that this is a, a kind of spirit of judicial and governmental leadership that would be given to him. This king will bring heavenly wisdom from God to earth and possess a kind of understanding that actually sees to the heart of issues. He would also second possess a spirit of counsel and might, words that remind us of the wonderful counselor and mighty God of Isaiah 9, speaking of a, a military counsel, possessing military strength or power with a heavenly host at his disposal. Not only that, third, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord reminds us of Proverbs 1-7 where Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of knowledge. So that the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God actually go hand in glove. Like those are, are ideas and, and, and meanings that go together. If you really fear the Lord, it's because you truly know Him as He is. And if you know Him as He is, you fear Him in the sense that your life is changed. It is changed in such a way that you live according to what you know about God. There's a fear of the Lord about this Spirit-endowed King. See, truly knowing God leads to a reverence for and obedience to God. And he will, His will, this King, is to do the will of His Father. The will of the Father that He meditates on day and night. This is a, a different kind of King. But third, we find in verses 3-5 to five that He also brings a righteous reign. He is a righteous King. Now don't miss this. His delight shall be the fear of the Lord in verse 3. Fear of the Lord does not mean that it actually makes his delight lessen. You, you catch that? He actually finds delight in the fear of and the knowledge of the Lord. In fact, he found, I believe, that he was sad and sorrowful and all of the things that he feared in the world that controlled him, uh, we did, but this king comes and shows us what true humanity looks like and he says, catch this, I delight in the fear of the Lord. That is how you were made to be. 
If you truly fear God and know him, it will not lead to a saddening of life or a lessening of life. It will lead to a fruitful, meaningful, joyful life like God intended for you. That's what Jesus comes and reveals to us, what real humanity looks like. See, the result is here a righteous king who delights in the fear of the Lord. And don't miss this. This is the kind of king that you can trust. Other kings of this world might have right skepticism about their motives. But this king, his motives are always good. See, the fear of the Lord means he's not like King Ahaz who, of Judah who is out for himself and oppresses the poor to cause himself to be greater because he does not fear God. This judge brings righteousness to the poor and weak, not for what he can get out, but because of who he is and who God is. And notice in verse 4, there is actually a power in this king's mouth such that when he speaks, it is effective. It carries out what he seeks to do. In fact, he says that he speaks with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips, it's not that it's really bad, it's just that it's really powerful. And that it smites his enemies, right? It affects change. His words aren't weak. His word is strong. And he wears a belt of righteousness. means that he is always strapped up to act justly. He is quick to do what is right and to bring about a right state of affairs amidst humanity for his kingdom. He is always ready to act justly. I'm just curious, when you hear this description, does this sound a lot like the people that you have an opportunity to vote for every four years? I'm not so grateful that we have great leaders, but I'll be honest with you, the best leader that you have ever met or ever voted for, who has ever won or lost, is nothing like this king. And if they are anything like this king, that's a good thing, but they are nothing like this king. He is unparalleled in his greatness. But don't you long in your heart for a, a leader like this? An ancient king with a spirit empowered intelligence and wisdom who is able to protect you. And, and not only that, one whom you can trust to the uttermost. One that you can trust is actually out for you and able to help you better than you can be out for yourself or help yourself or know what you need. It's that kind of king. See, this is the kind of king that Isaiah foresaw. Well, as I've already said and tipped my hat to, I believe that Jesus is the shoot and the root that he was looking forward to. Matthew 3, 13 to 17, I believe, gives us a picture of this very thing. Now, this is a text that Jehovah's Witnesses, I believe, misunderstand. They don't understand what's going on here. This is the story of Jesus' baptism. And you'll remember in that story that it's been basically 400 years of silence where God has not spoken to his people. And yet, in the midst of that, the silence is broken whenever God rents open the heavens and speaks down to his son, whom John the Baptist is baptizing. And he says, Behold, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. I haven't been happy in a long time with humanity, but this one, this one I am happy with, I am pleased with. He is my beloved and that's the voice of God to Jesus. Now, I know that if you're talking to Jehovah's Witness, they'll say something like, well, see, there, Jesus is being adopted. Because in the scene, you'll remember that as God is saying this, the, the dove-like spirit is descending upon Jesus at this baptism. 
And, and, and so they think, oh, well, this is where he receives the spirit and the adoption and all that kind of thing. But that is not at all the image that is being given here. No, what we find here in this picture is actually an anointing of a king, a spirit anointing, fulfilling the promise that Isaiah had that there was a spirit-anointed king who was going to come with a unique anointing from God himself. Nowhere else in the Bible do we see this kind of anointing where the spirit descends and rests upon someone. It is not because Jesus did not have the spirit before. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus was born of a virgin when the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus with the Virgin Mary. And so we know that Jesus always had the Spirit, but here we are shown an image of the reality that Jesus is the long-awaited King or Messiah that we waited for. And that's why I believe Matthew's Gospel begins there and ends in chapter 28 with this declaration by Christ Himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, God's King. There is none like me. Now, of course, Jesus tells our response to King Jesus' authority He tells us in Matthew 28 how we ought to respond now that King Jesus has shown up. And what does he tell us? We need to go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe Jesus' teachings. We need to, to, to find other folks and show them who Christ is. Introduce them to Jesus Christ who is King and invite them into the kingdom of Christ. You know, the Bible really presents uh, in this world that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ, which we find in, in uh, little small emissaries of local churches. And, and then we also have uh, the kingdom or the domain of Satan. Really just two zip codes. And here what we find is we are invited as the people of God to invite everyone into the best zip code ever. We are invited to invite people into the house of God, into his family. And that's exactly what discipleship is. It is what we have been called to do. Did you know that you were made to make disciples of Jesus Christ? Maybe this morning you're thinking like, man, what's the purpose of life? Well, let me tell you what it is. It is making disciples for Jesus. Now, that might look really different for each of us. And the kinds of folks that God brings us into relationship to, the opportunities that we have to glorify God and make relationships and make disciples... But we are all called to make followers of Jesus Christ. That is your calling as a human. Let me just ask you this morning, is discipleship a priority for you? Okay, let me get a little more personal. What does that look like in real time? If you really believe that God has made you to make disciples, and you take seriously the fact that all authority in heaven on earth has been given to Jesus, and he says, with that authority, go and make disciples, then what practically daily does that look like for you? Who is it that you are investing in and making disciples of? Are you pouring into others? Who are you meeting with to talk about Jesus and the scriptures and what they teach about him? Let me just encourage you this morning. If you are a believer, then then hopefully the Holy Spirit is using this in your life to encourage you to be thinking about someone that you can meet with, either to be discipled by or to disciple, or uh, you might find, like many have found, that you think that you're discipling someone who's actually discipling you, or vice versa. Everybody gets wins whenever we are meeting together and learning together how to follow Jesus. Now, let me also add this. Jesus says with all authority that we are to make disciples. And if Jesus is king, we will make disciples. But could it be this morning that one reason that we're not making disciples like we should is because we have not been quite captivated with Christ as we ought? 
that King Jesus has not been seen in this glorious light that Isaiah has presented him and as the scriptures present him? Could it be this morning that the reason that our hearts are driven towards all kinds of other occupations and distracted from discipleship because we have lost a vision of the greatness of Christ? Well, the more captivated we are with Jesus, I believe the more fruitful we will be in making disciples. I love one great disciple maker, the Scottish Presbyterian pastor Samuel Rutherford. From the 17th century, he wrote a book called The Loveliness of Christ. Or he just delights in the loveliness of Christ. Just phrase after phrase, him chewing on how great Christ is. And here's what he says in that work. He says this about Christ. And let me just ask you if this is what you could affirm in your own heart this morning. And if it's not something that you can affirm, then maybe this is something we can all aspire to. And here's what he says. Put all the pleasures of life, such as family, job, recreation, music, sports, entertainment, cuisine, and technology in one. Oh, what excellent joys they are! Yet, such joys pale in comparison with the delight of knowing Jesus and basking in communion with His person, not just His work. In Christ, the drop of rain. Or is He the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths? What a glorious thought. So this morning, is it that he is the drop of rain or he is the, as he says, the fountains of 10,000 earths for us? Well, I believe as we start to make that shift from the drop of rain to the fountains of 10,000 earths that we will find that our hearts are excited more towards telling others about Christ. We need to meditate on Christ and pray that our hearts would shift more and more towards seeing his greatness. But catch this. Verses 6 to 9 remind us that we share in God's plan of redemption, but not to lose sight of the incredibly hopeful future promised restoration. We're promised redemption, but there is a restoration that's coming for us. So, second, we see this king will restore all things in verses 6 to 9. Uh, Look there again with me in Isaiah chapter 11, and let's look at this section. This is really an encouraging text, speaking to the future that awaits us. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 6. Here's what the word of the Lord says. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking to myself, I wonder what zoo Isaiah's been taking his kids to, right? I mean, that's not exactly the current state of affairs for you and me. So what exactly is it that he's envisioning here? I mean, I don't know about you, but I've never been to the Phoenix Zoo and seen a lion and a calf chilling in the same exhibit together. I don't see a bear catch a piggyback ride on a cow. I don't see these kinds of things. In fact, I was uh, watching a show with my kid just the other day, and uh, as we were watching it, there was this entertainer on the show who had an act where he had a mouse who would ride the back of a cat who would ride the back of a dog. It's like his, his gig. 
and uh, the sort of uh, camera zooms away from him and it comes back and the mouse is gone and his little tail is just kind of hanging out of the cat's mouth and he says, "Ah, I guess I'll have to get another mouse again. Isn't that really the, the way that this world works? I mean, that's natural. That's what's normal. A world that, a creation that seems turned in on itself, that's not only against us, but even itself, it rages and wars against itself. That's the world that we see. That's why Dorothy says lions and tigers and bears, oh my, right? Like because she understands the terror of the creatures and the creation against us and itself. But Paul says that this is actually a picture, not just of the animals, but I believe the whole creation in the way that it has been affected by the fall and sin. So Romans 8.28 says, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now there's a, a lot of hurt and groaning all around us. Creation seems to be at war against humanity. Our bodies are wasting away. Sickness and brokenness attack our bodies and our minds. But catch this, The way everything is, isn't the way that it's always going to be. That's what Isaiah is telling us. A new day is coming. And and I call this day the day after Genesis 3.15. Do you remember the the day that is presented to us in Genesis 3.15? You'll remember that God created everything good. And then in Genesis 3, man and woman, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. And God said, I'm sending a curse on the earth such that it's going to work against you and fight against you and the whole world will be in turmoil. And even the relationship of man and woman who are the pinnacle of creation, they are going to experience friction between themselves. And so there's hostility everywhere. But here's a a word of hope and promise. That serpent that led you into sin. I am sending the woman a child. And that child one day will rise up and crush the head of the serpent. And what that means is, is he's going to undo all that sin was brought about when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. He was going to undo the effects of sin. And so here, I believe in verse 8, where we see this child changing the way that he is interacting with snakes is a picture of what the day after Genesis 3.15 looks like when sin has finally been dealt with. There you'll notice that In verse 8, he envisions the result of the child who undoes the works of Satan. And you know something's changed when all of a sudden you're letting your child play peekaboo with a cobra. Like, that's different. And that's exactly the world that we find that has exploded here. And it's okay on this day because verse 9 promises the hurt and the groaning of creation and destruction will all be replaced with the pervasive knowledge of God that shall flood out of Zion and over onto the whole earth. I mean, what a day that will be. Now, one day I was preaching on uh, something like this at another congregation. And as we were preaching, uh, as I, after I got through preaching with it, I had a woman come up to me, and she looked just distraught. And I was thinking, how do you get through preaching on the new heavens and the new earth and have somebody discouraged? I mean, I really broke that, right? And she said, I've got a question for you. When you were preaching... Like, I just couldn't help but think, does this mean there's not going to be any fishing in heaven? It's like, that's what you're coming to me with? I talked a lot more about Jesus than fishing, but 
I said, you know what, well, here's my, here's my quick answer. My quick answer is, it seems like in John 21 that the resurrected Lord actually has a fish breakfast with the disciples, and I actually can't imagine the marriage feast of the Lamb without a steak. So uh, I'm thinking that, yeah, there probably is going to be like fishing and steak. I don't know how it all works out, but it seems like it's going to happen. It's not very theological, but I, I think it's true. But you know what I thought about it? This is actually really a great question at the heart of it, one that we hear all the time, one that I heard from my son Johnny just a few weeks ago. Like, Dad, what's heaven going to be like? Is it really going to be that good? Well, I think that that is a question that ought to be in all of our hearts, constantly. And we ought to constantly be feeding it. What is heaven going to be like? What is this restoration going to be like for us? We ought to be thinking about that. Could it be that we grow restless in redemption because we haven't thought much about the future restoration that awaits us? I mean, what specifically excites you about the new heavens and the new earth? Maybe you imagine it kind of like Tom and Jerry, who become sort of ghost-like, angel-type figures with halos that are just going to play harps for God forever. And you're like, I don't really like playing the harp. And I, I really don't like the idea of like not being able to touch stuff, Right? I mean, cool passing through walls, but like not able to be a bodily existence. That just doesn't sound that cool to me. And so maybe it's dull to you. Well, I just want you to know, I actually prefer the Bible to Tom and Jerry when I'm thinking about my future. Now catch this. The, the Bible is rife with brilliant uh, pointers towards what our future is going to look like. And we ought to be scathing through the scriptures looking for those. So let me just give you some this morning. If you have a pen, you can write these scriptures down. But this is a picture that I want to draw for you. These are just some points. I had to pick some. So these are some, but there are so many more in the Scriptures to encourage you about what is coming, what our future is in Christ. Acts 1, 10-11 tells us that Jesus went out bodily, and He's coming back that way. And if Jesus has a bodily existence, then that means that His people and His kingdom will have bodily existences. We will actually have bodies. It will be a physical, living experience. In Revelation 21 to 22, catch this. We are told we actually don't go to heaven, but heaven comes to us. It drops down like a city into this creation, into this world. In fact, it is a renewed and restored creation that does not have the effects of sin and the fall upon it. Creation is not groaning against us anymore. It's rejoicing. Can you imagine a happy creation? What does a happy dolphin look like? What does a happy sunset look like? I can't imagine. All we've seen so far is a groaning sunset. And yet one day we're going to have an unfettered, glorious sunset. But here's the problem. We won't need the sun anymore. Maybe he's off the job and he's on vacation and that's why he's happy. Because we're told that in the new heavens and the new earth, we don't need a sun or a moon anymore. For God the Father shall be its light and its lamp shall be the Lamb. What a future. We can't imagine. Like, we just have these little pictures, snapshots, and it's like, this is just a foretaste. You have no idea what's coming. Revelation 21.4 tells us that in this place, God himself will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people, and death shall be no more. What a day. 1 Corinthians 15.42. might be thinking, I'm not ready for a place like that. It's okay. You're getting a new upgrade of a body. God gives you not a perishable body like the one that you have that's broke down and keeps on breaking down. He gives you a new body. A body as it was intended to be. Not affected by the fall. And verse 54 of 1 Corinthians 15 says death dies. 
Now here's what that means. Heaven will actually be a renewed earth free from hurt and groaning, but amplified in glory and pleasure. So God himself will make the music in this place. Have you ever read Zephaniah 3? If you're wondering what the background music is, it is the voice of God himself singing over his people in delight. Do any of you feel like you deserve God to sing over you? Like, I don't. I mean, it's, it's humbling to think about the God of the universe who I sinned against, who he had to give his son to die for me, and yet he's going to call me a son and say, and by the way, I delight in you so much, I'm going to sing over you. And I'm like, I'm not really much to sing about. That's awe-inspiring that heaven is going to be this kind of place. 1 John 3, 2-3 tells us that that's, that's not really the creme de la creme of what it is to be in heaven, though. The, the, the great aspect of heaven The crown jewel of what it means to be in heaven is actually something far greater than all of this. And that is that we are told that we shall see Christ face to face. 1 John 2, 2-3, he says, When Christ appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. That is what the, the ancients called the beatific vision, where we don't any longer speak of Seeing God by faith, we shall see Him with our eyes. Our eyeballs shall see and behold our Savior. The Ancient of Days who took on a body in the crib and then later died on the cross for you and me and was raised from the dead and now intercedes for us. We will behold Him. What a place. That's our future. I love what Augustine said. He said, faith is to believe what you do not see. But the reward of this faith is to see what you believe, Jesus himself. Please don't miss this. If you are the redeemed of God, you have repented of your sins and put your faith in him, a great restoration is coming with the return of Christ, which will set all things right. Our future is incredibly bright. And that means that we have put our faith in Christ. There is no possible way to have your best life now. There is no possible way. Because God says that it is completely unfettered joy that we await and everything here is always, always bound and chained awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. So we would have to make less of Christ to make more of now. But Tim Keller says it this way. The gospel isn't just a wonderful plan for my life. And maybe that's what you've done. You've isolated the effects of the gospel. An important isolation, but not one that you need to just live with. You need to recognize this. It is about the coming of God's kingdom to restore all things. See, here's why that matters. God cares about his creation and physical things. The world around you matters. The life you live matters. In fact, Herman Bavink said it this way, when the eschatological or that end times return of Jesus, that last day element is left out, Christians get the impression that nothing much about this world matters. But do you see the glory of God in this? See, the consummation of Jesus' victory will be a startling, reversing, awakening, restoring, and delighting of what it means to be truly human as God intended. And so just imagine what a restored basketball game would look like. What restored beauty and bodies and country music looks like. It's got to be fantastic. 
In fact, I, I believe a, a rap or classical music, I, I think there's going to be rap in heaven. That's true. I mean, I think. I don't know. But I know I just lost some of you with that one. But, but do you see it? I mean, if heaven isn't an alien world we go to, that we have no, like, way to, to understand how to process what it will be, but a restoration of the world we know, it means that our current lives are pregnant with meaning for God's glory. Now just think about this for a minute. What if present investments in this world, in this life, storing up your treasures in heaven, is much more pervasive than you realize, and they really do yield eternal heavenly rewards? Uh, in uh, Randy Alcorn's book, he tells a story of a, a chair that he built, or someone built, and what a great chair it was. And he said, what if that chair actually translates in the new heavens and the new earth? That all of that creativity that he used from God to make that was actually seen in the new heavens and new earth, redeemed and restored. What would that be like? And brothers and sisters, I believe that the way that we live in this life actually matters for the life that is to come. But catch what else. Our text tells us that what every famous person has asked for for Christmas, world peace, gets their wish, kind of. So so look at verses 10 to 16. There we see King Jesus will be a banner to the nations. King Jesus will be a banner to the nations. Uh, Look with me again in verse 10 at what he says. It says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. On that day, we find that this shoot that is also the root will be raised up as a a signal, which is the same word for banner, a banner for the peoples, for the nations. So God has already kind of prepared us for this, right? Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 4 spoke of God's intention to draw the nations to Mount Zion to worship Him in spirit and in truth. But here it's the raising up of this banner that signals the nations to draw near. This raising up of this king that is coming. And notice in verses 11 to 12 that his people come from the nations. But he repeats that it will be a signal for the nations. In other words, he's not just calling Israel that has been scattered. He's actually calling the non-Jewish nations to come under this banner. This banner that has been raised to become part of the people of God. They're going to have a new flag for this kingdom. And this kingdom is going to have a flag that will be raised over all those who come to God's king who is raised up. Verses 13 and 14 to 16 might look a little bit confusing. Might look like they contradict each other. So verse 13 pictures peace in the Middle East between Israel and Judah. But then did you notice verses 14 to 16 seem to picture war with the nations? I don't see universal peace as a contradiction here. I believe that what we find is he is picking up, Isaiah, this image of God as the divine, victorious warrior king who is going to to send his kingdom out and it will be ever-expanding and nobody will ever be able to in any way diminish or halt the expansion of his kingdom. It will grow until it reaches the uttermost parts of the universe. See, I believe the image is that of a Messiah or anointed king as a victorious divine warrior whose kingdom is expanding. So just as God redeemed and delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, this anointed king would deliver God's people from Assyria. Of course, God would defeat Assyria 100 years later when Babylon would come. 
But ultimately, I believe the Apostle John saw Jesus as the banner that was raised, calling the nations into his victory. Now we see this in John chapter 12, verse 32. Now there in John 12, 32, uh, Jesus says this, he says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men, all men to myself. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, is he talking about like the cross or is he talking about his ascension? Well, I, I believe he is talking about the cross itself. Here's why. Verse 33 of John 12 goes on to say, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, that cross became the flagpole and Jesus the flag, the banner that God raised up for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in him. It's those people that God would bring into his kingdom and make a new kingdom for the glory of his name. And it's the cross of Christ that waves in the stormy days of this world, reminding us that our great anointed king gave his life on the cross to redeem sinners with the promise, with the promise that one day he will restore all things. He is going to make all things new. That's what the cross promises us. So our king, he accomplishes not by bragging and swagging, but through self-giving love. And God displayed his power in weakness. And he invites us to revel in the power of the cross and the cross alone. Now, if you're here this morning, I've got to tell you that, that there really is bad news in this world. The bad news that we find on CNN really isn't the worst news. The worst news is the news about our relationship with God, which left to ourselves is broken and hopeless. So this morning, if you have not put your faith in Christ, I don't want you to leave not understanding or recognizing that the Bible says that there's something that needs to change about your life so that it goes from hopelessness to hopeful. And here's what it is. You need to put your faith in Christ. Apart from Christ, things are darker than dark and worse than you know. But here's the hope in Christ. If you turn from your sins and you make Jesus your king, if you look to him as the banner of your life, what you will find this morning is if you see the banner of Christ waving over you and calling you to repent of your sins and to believe in Christ as your king, if you do that today, your future will be brighter than you can imagine. Jesus is coming back to set things right. Put your faith in him today. Don't leave without doing that. I would love to talk to you about that. We've got lots of people here who would love nothing more than to share Christ with you today. Well, as we look at this text, it, it reminds me in closing of a, a final scene in the book, uh, The Lord of the Rings. One that's not in the movie, but it's a powerful scene at the end. Right after the ring is destroyed and the eagles have rescued Sam and Frodo, Sam actually wakes up from sleeping and he's surprised that he's alive and sees Gandalf standing at the foot of his bed. And he gasps, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And then he asked a really interesting question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Well, Isaiah 11 would respond to Sam, yes, Sam. All those in Christ will see a restoration of all things, and all those sad things in this world will come untrue. They will be undone. Just like Joel 2 says, what the locusts have eaten, I will return to you. I will restore even the effects of our sin, God is going to undo for the glory of his name. Praise be to God for the future that we have before us. Let's pray.